Okay, well, we'll go ahead and begin. Um, with the question from Adrienne, um, how do I know when my ego structure is healthy enough that I can go for insight without worry? <clears throat> now, that's a, uh, that is a very interesting question. Um, uh, perhaps to begin with, we clarify what we mean by uh, uh, healthy ego structure and uh, what, what in, at least in terms of, of meditation, I would say a healthy ego structure is one in which you've managed to uh, resolve and integrate uh, the residues uh, that we all have of the various kinds of psychological and emotional trauma and of uh, uh, internal conflicts from uh, that have many different sources, but uh, most of us typically have uh, various uh, conflicting value systems, which we uh, harbor simultaneously and uh, um, which are because they're in conflict, uh, they stand in the way of unification of the mind. A lot of the residues of uh, uh, past uh, emotional and psychological trauma are kind of segregated. They tend to be, uh, they tend to not be active uh, in in much of our lives and seem, seem to be triggered in certain s situations at an unconscious level and we, we're not aware of the effect that they're having on us just that we'll feel a particular emotional response we'll feel an inclination to behave in a particular way and not really understand or recognize the source of that um, <clears throat> some of these can be woven into uh, uh, almost everything we do. Like, for example, um, there's a tendency in many people, and some much more than others, to um, take everything personally, right? And so everything that happens, everything that anybody else says or does, uh, they take it, take it personally. And this is the kind of thing that can be going on continuously all of the time. And you're not recognizing that you're doing it. But it would be an example of how you would not have a healthy ego structure. Uh, and that when it comes to insight and the process of recognizing or having a substantial part of your mind system uh, uh, assimilate a perspective uh, uh, based on insight, this, th this is going to stand as, as an obstacle to that. And this is going to make the process of insight uh, 
very, very disturbing and very difficult uh, to the point of sometimes people reach that boundary and, and then they have to, they, they, they fall back from it. But the question here is how do you tell when you have a healthy enough ego structure? Um, in doing a, a, the practice described in TMI, the, the 10 stages of, of Samatha Vipassana, give you ample opportunities for, uh, for these kinds of things to come to the surface and to be recognized. Now, one of the things that I want to make clear is that <clears throat> you can become awakened, you can be on the higher path of awakening, and you can still have a lot of unresolved psychological material. But a, health, a healthy enough ego is the one where you've resolved enough of this uh, kind of stuff, enough of your stuff, enough of your neurosis, that your mind can uh, more easily shift into a totally new paradigm, which is uh, diametrically opposed to the paradigm by which you have seen things before and, and understood things before. In the course of uh, TMI, not only, uh, or in the course of these 10 stages as we've laid them out in TMI, not only are there the opportunities for these things to become evident, uh, and that becomes evident because there's some resistance to unification of the mind taking place. Well, that resistance is, is a reflection of the fact that there's some part of the mind system that is holding uh, a, a different view uh, and that, that difference creates a, a resistance or a tension uh, that... Uh, must be overcome in order for unification to take place. Must either become overcome or that part of the mind system must get buried a little deeper and covered over, uh, which means it, it'll, you know, after awakening, you're a little better prepared to deal with those kinds of things. But as long as it gets out of the way of sufficient unification for uh, the process of insight to lead to, to awakening. Um, And probably the place that uh, it becomes most evident is when insight arises. Um, and insight builds. All of these insights are things that we've always uh, experienced, There's the, the, but we've never, uh, we've never recognized them as a more accurate description of reality. So when you come to the point where uh, insight experiences are just really demonstrating to you that there's something wrong with the way that you've looked at things, things are really not like that. And how much resistance that you encounter in, in that is an indication of how healthy uh, your, your ego is. Um, but of course, by that at at that time, um, 
it's that's not the best time for that to happen because that's what makes the transition to awakening very difficult very painful and, and such a struggle for some people uh even to the extent that uh, uh there's kind of a pathological condition that arises that uh, uh that you've all been hearing about called the dark night and i am not talking here about the dukkha jnanas. those are just the mind's natural response to uh having to replace the fundamental uh beliefs and assumptions that it has operated on for your entire life with a new set. Um, and that shouldn't last very long or be very difficult. But it's uh, unfortunately, the process of insight is going to bring all of your stuff to the surface that you haven't already dealt with. And that's what can lead into a, a very difficult transition uh, or even not being able to make the transition. Uh, uh, or having a, a very difficult period in your life, no matter which way it goes, whether you manage to go through it or whether you end up backing off. So the ways that you can, one of the ways that you can tell how much unresolved stuff you have is the practice that uh, being mindful as possible in your daily life. Uh, and by the way, the fact that this kind of mindfulness comes much more easily and much more naturally after path attainment uh, is why it's easier, to, a little bit easier to deal with some of these things afterwards, the ones that didn't get dealt with before. But anyway, if you, if you started out with uh, doing the mindful review and you developed a high level of mindfulness, you are going to become aware uh, of the resistances that are present and what they what they represent uh, this is doing this practice of being mindful in daily life uh, practicing uh, right thought and intention right speech right action and right livelihood is is the best way uh, to not only tell that you have uh, essentially parts of your mind that aren't on board with the project that uh, the, the mindful review describes, that of, uh, of detachment from uh, uh, ego, the, the belief in your, uh, e the reality of your ego self and your sense of self and your perception of the world uh, and your relationship to it as one of uh, getting happiness and avoiding pain through your inter through an interaction with the world of other self-like entities. So that's what I would uh, what I think is one of the great advantages of this particular practice. Um, uh, it. it it will help to give you a much healthier ego. And if you practice mindfulness in your daily life, uh, you will recognize the health of your own ego. You will see when you're responding in a more uh, reasonable, rational, compassionate, uh, just plain sensible way uh, than you would have before. 
and you also see where you're not doing that and and you'll recognize that there's some part of your psyche that is getting in the way of that so that is the answer to uh, uh, your question uh, Adrian is Adrian is I thought was here yes yeah, uh, I am yeah hi <laughs> Does, does that get to the crux of what you were asking? Yeah, uh, yes, I, I was, I'm kind of experiencing something like that already. Amazing is in uh, seeing my intentions and mm -hmm. others' intentions and right. clear awareness. So, yeah, uh, I thought it might, it might be related with that. Yes. It's a, I'm, I'm glad I got the opportunity to talk about that because, uh, you know, there's so much, well, so much attention being given to what are being referred to as adverse effects of meditation in this dark night phenomenon, which is uh, one of the major uh, causes of that is that somebody has a very unhealthy ego and it is very difficult to let go of your attachment when uh, you don't have a healthy ego structure when you have a uh, and uh, it's it's like uh, it's like performing a very valuable and arduous feat with a body that has diseased and broken parts to it you know <laughs> Yes, so. it's it's very scary the the stories about the people who will enter in the dark night of the soul, which is mm -hmm. one of the things why I ask because uh, I would really like to avoid that. Yes, and it is quite avoidable. It is quite avoidable. Yes, uh, and the intellectual understanding of. Uh, of the insights themselves and uh, recognizing uh, how your mind can understand these things at one level yet continue to uh, behave and react at uh, uh, in, in in total ignorance of yeah. these things uh, this uh, the intellectual understanding gives these parts of your mind that eventually need to completely uh, shift the the basic principles by which they interpret experience and, and reality it gives them something to go by right yeah yeah and yeah, I, the, and the recognition that you've been that you know something but your uh, your your attitude and your behavior doesn't reflect that knowledge. That's also communicating an important piece of information to different parts of the mind system. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah. You're welcome. Okay, next question here is: um, What are the main obstacles? This is uh, uh, Thomas Bernardi's. What are the main obstacles to the spread of the Dharma in the West? For instance, he recently mentioned holding certain reservations over aspects of the pragmatic Dharma movement. 
hope you can hear me over that airplane that's going from over there. Uh, what would have to change to better align it with Buddha Dharma? Um, it seems to be a question, it starts off with a very general question, what are the main obstacles to the spread of the Dharma in the West? And then it seems to focus in more specifically on uh, pragmatic Dharma. Um, I believe there's a question later on that's, that is similar to this, uh, and we might get into some of the answers of that. The obstacles, the Buddha predicted that the Dharma that he taught uh, would become corrupted within uh, 500 years. And that was a very accurate prediction. I think it has, <clears throat> what is really and truly remarkable is the degree to which that Dharma has survived at its core, despite the corruptions that have, uh, uh, the, the various accretions from uh, uh, other religious uh, systems and, uh, and ordinary human nature trying to satisfy its various needs, uh, people trying to reconcile uh, uh, dogma with dharma, uh, things like that. Um, so one of the obstacles to awakening everywhere is all of the extraneous stuff that has been added to the Buddha's teaching. Uh, uh, I, I find the Buddha's Dharma that he taught to be really very clear, very coherent, very connected, not uh, does, doesn't there aren't contradictions that you, know, you have to fight and struggle to resolve in some way. Um, it, it may it may be a challenge to uh, understand some aspects of the Dharma, and the biggest challenge, of course, is to assimilate these in, uh, into a completely new way of seeing and understanding things, a new way of perceiving. But the naturalization of the Dharma, which means the removal of those things which are supernatural, um, one of the things, uh, uh, one of the insights that is very important uh, is understanding the interconnectedness of everything. And the pathway to understanding that is to recognize the causal interconnectedness of everything. Now, the Buddha went so far as to tell Ananda that that Paticca uh, Samuppada, that's the, that's the interconnectedness of everything, uh, is the Dharma, and the Dharma is Paticca Samuppada, and that this is something that is deep and difficult to understand. And uh, kind of lost track of where I was going with that. <laughs> yes, so um, I'm talking about naturalization. So what this is telling us 
is that there is nothing that's outside of the realm of causality. And you'll find this phrase throughout the, the suttas and different, and, and this was the phrase that opened the Dharma eye for uh, 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 his two primary disciples, Sariputta and uh, uh, memory. Yeah. Anyway, uh, this phrase is that everything that arises due to causes and conditions passes away due to causes and conditions. And what we can see is that there is absolutely nothing that stands outside of causes and conditions. That's what, that's what Paticca Samapada is about. When this is, that is. When this is not, that is not. When this arises, this follows. And when this passes away, that passes away. Everything is causally interconnected. Anything outside of the realm of causality, now we have to grant that there's a lot of things about the realm of causality that we don't know. Uh, for example, in the, in the physical world, there is so much that uh, we know now that we didn't know a century ago or two centuries ago, so think, uh, things like that. So there can be things that seem magical, but what we really need to understand is underneath, everything is interconnected, and there is a causal interconnectedness uh, of everything. Nothing, nothing is supernatural. So this is what naturalization of the Dharma means. So naturalization of the Dharma is a major step. Now, this has kind of led to... Uh, in the case of pragmatic dharma, um, it's opened the doorway to redefining much of what is in the uh, uh, in the Tipitaka, what is in the what is in the teachings of the Buddha and the commentaries on them. And the problem with it is that this once this doorway is open, we find that a lot of people don't stop with uh, setting aside those things which uh, uh, smack of the supernatural. And I say setting aside because they might ultimately not, but, uh, but they seem supernatural. It goes beyond setting aside certain things in the, traditional, uh, in the traditional teachings that are supernatural in nature. And feeling that there's a license to basically redefine everything in the Dharma. The tendency in the pragmatic Dharma is to redefine things in such a way that people can, uh, I, I mean, if I, if I put it in its, uh, in its meanest form, so that people can validate themselves as having uh, achieved uh, some high spiritual attainment. So there's, so there's been all kinds of redefinitions. The, what the Buddha spoke of was a shift in perception. He spoke of seeing things as they really are. And this is the essence of awakening. And this is why awakening is the term that the Buddha used. There's nothing corresponding to the term enlightenment in any of his teachings. He used the word awakening because it's like being in a dream. Uh, 
and then waking up and recognizing that you were in a dream and seeing how things really, really are. Now, <clears throat> this shift in perception isn't a temporary thing. It's a permanent shift in perception. And our perception determines how we respond to all of our experiences. Therefore, it affects our behavior internally and externally. It affects how we perceive things in relationship to this five aggregates making its way through the world. And it, uh, it, it changes the way we perceive the world and its, its nature. It, it creates traits, traits of perception, traits of behavior, traits of mental and emotional response. A lot of what happens in the pragmatic dharma, as I'm seeing, is that emphasis is shifted to experiences and states. So in the way I think of it, experiences are short-term things that can be very, very powerful. Experiences can pave the way towards states. States arise due to causes and conditions. They're temporary. They fall away when those causes and conditions fall away or when other causes and conditions intervene. Traits go much deeper. Traits are, that's why I say, awakening, true insight involves a reprogramming of the unconscious mind from which our conscious view of reality arises, a profound reprogramming of the deepest levels of our unconscious mind, which give rise to our perceptions and in turn to our internal and external behaviors. So to put the emphasis on experiences or to put the emphasis on states, even if it's a state that lasts for weeks or things like that, is to miss the point. Okay? So what, what the Buddha taught was a path, a process, <clears throat> that involves moving from experiences through states to permanent changes in the way the mind and brain function and, and the way perception occurs. So this seems to be where pragmatic dharma is getting off track. And uh, that is a, a concern of mine. Uh, you know, I'm not rejecting it out of hand. I'm saying, look, we have to, we have to take uh, the discussions that people are having, the descriptions that they're giving, uh, the claims that they're making, and we need to carefully examine these from uh, multiple directions. And we need to compare them with what the Buddha actually taught and with what the Buddha manifested in, in his behavior in his life so that we truly understand these things. So like the supernatural side goes way off to one extreme. The pragmatic side is on its way way off to another extreme. And there's also something similar that's happened in the movement that's called secular dharma. And it's, you know, if you, if you really 
cut through all of the nice language. It's basically saying the Dharma provides a formula by which uh, a person can live a much, much happier life and we might create a much more idyllic society than we do now. But all this stuff about awakening and insight and stuff like that, it's, it's just relative. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it, it's not really supra-mundane. Uh, it's just super-mundane. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it's higher quality mundane. mundane. <laughs> and... Uh, and, and once again, just as, as I said, we were saying about the tendency in the pragmatic dharma. I see this as a tendency in secular dharma. I'm, I'm not making a global statement about either one, uh, but it's a, it, it's a tendency, and these all stand as obstacles. If you've got a lot of stuff that you haven't worked through, and you've convinced yourself that you've achieved uh, uh, certain insights and certain paths. Um, the effect that that's going to have is to produce a lot of conscious and unconscious spiritual bypassing. It's going to create enormous obstacles to the to the true realization of these insights and the the deep transformation that the Dharma is about. So that. That's what I have to say about my concerns about those things. And my approach, by the way, is not to stand aside and say, well, this is what I see happening and, and be critical. I want to engage these people. I'm, I'm trying, I'm beginning in that process. I want to engage them directly. I, I, I want there to be discussion. I want there to be interaction. And I want people to do this very open-mindedly, which is quite difficult because as well, uh, it, it, it takes a very non-self-centered perspective to, to be truly open-minded when you're talking about these things. But what I'm after is interaction, dialogue, careful examination, and sharing. Right now, there's more there's, there's too much pulling off. Well, I've got my way of understanding it and the rest of you are all deluded and things like that. And I don't want to join that crowd. I don't want to be standing over here saying, oh, well, that's what's wrong with you guys and that's what's wrong with you guys and that's what's wrong with traditional dharma. I mean, I'm saying that. I don't want to go beyond that. I mean, I, I want to have that discussion. I want to get into it with you. Okay. And so that is a project that, I'm working on together with a very uh, wonderful partner who is actually uh, in this group today. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Next question. Um, Maria Castro, I have certain benign addictive behaviors that sometimes overtake my life. Sugar, shopping, I've looked into 12 programs, but they talk about surrendering to a higher power. Is this possible in the context of Buddhism? Yes, by all means, most definitely. Um, it's, it's expressed in a lot of different forms in, uh, um, in, in, in different traditions, but uh, it's, it's really 
it's really the, the, the thing is Buddha nature. How could any of us become awakened? How could any of us become a Buddha if we did not all share in Buddha nature? And we do. And as a matter of fact, Buddha nature, emptiness, uh, uh, suchness, uh, we could go on uh, you know, with the list of, of terms that have arisen. They're all speaking to the same thing. And we are, we already have that capacity uh, in us. It's a part of who and what we already are. So, so that is the higher power that you surrender to. In the simplest terms, it's refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. What is refuge in the Buddha other than to say that a human being like myself was able to achieve this very high level of awakening? Awakening is possible. I will surrender to this, that I will surrender to the, that there is this awakening. The Dharma, it's a surrender to, there, there's a path to achieve that awakening. It's available, it's there, there are teachers. And, and the guru is within. others from outside but that higher power ultimately is going to be working through me internally so when you take refuge in the Dharma in the Buddha and the Dharma you're really taking refuge in a much higher power than what you are in what you perceive yourself to be in your ordinary human existence and taking refuge in the Sangha is basically taking refuge in the fact that this is possible for me. This is possible for everyone. This, this higher power, by taking refuge in this higher power, any of us can access something which can guide us and lead us out of the samsara that we live in and create for ourselves. So absolutely, do the 12-step program and uh, take refuge in that higher power. It's right there waiting for you. And believe me, it's in you. You have it. You wouldn't even be here asking the question if that higher power weren't already working through you. So go for it, Maria. And uh, whatever your various addictions are, you know, you're not that different than anybody else, but develop mindfulness, observe them, let that higher power work through your conscious recognition of these things. So, and surrender is an important thing too. Surrender to the fact that you are the way you are and surrender to the fact that through refuge in that higher power and through doing the, and practicing the Dharma, that you can leave all that behind. Yeah. Taylor, Taylor Dukes, yes. If I'm understanding intention correctly, isn't there an implication that an adept, that an adept meditator can influence the collective unconscious and thus the world itself very strongly through the use of repeatedly sustained intentions? 
yes, absolutely. That, that's really what this is all about. Except a lot of the confusion, of course, arises around, you know, you say, isn't there an implication that an adept meditator? Now, what you need to recognize is that adept meditator is a vast collection of unconscious minds operating both independently and interactively. There is not an adept meditator. There is, there are, uh, there is a process. Uh, there are five aggregates. There is, but there is an evolving process. Uh, and that evolving process can change itself through its intentions. Intention is karma. The fruit of karma, the results of karma, are the person that you become. And so that's what this whole thing is about. That through intentions, the mind system can change itself up to the point of discovering the Dharma and understanding how intention as karma shapes not what happens to us, but who it happens to. Prior to that, what, how we created who we are or who we were prior to discovering that was haphazard. It, it was random. It was done in ignorance. But with this understanding comes the, the knowledge that you can intentionally shape yourself, your mind, at the deepest possible level. And intention is the means by which we do that. And the Buddha recognized that and said, when I say karma, I mean intention. Because karma had been seen as this mysterious power that superseded everything else and, um, and, and, and mindfulness of, uh, of this power is what would bring about the kind of change that constitutes awakening in a person and even in a society. So he said, when I say karma, I mean intention in recognition of that. So, yes, absolutely. Are there any resources that might be helpful in better understanding this? Um, I'd say if you take to heart and understand the teachings of the Buddha on karma and, uh, and its effect, that karma is intention, and through our intentions, we move ourselves either closer to awakening or further from awakening, and that we can modify our intentions uh, in a systematic way, beginning with not always acting upon them by recognizing when they're wholesome and when they're unwholesome. And wholesome is simply an intention that is beneficial for others and or yourself and leads you closer to becoming awakened. So that's everything from the intention to meditate to the intention to make some kind of personal sacrifice 
for the benefit of others out of out of compassion so um, in, intention intention is the most powerful thing that our mind system has to work with and when we speak of unifying the mind around intentions that is how intention works the ordinary worldling behaves the way they do because they're constantly beset by all kinds of different intentions uh, held by all kinds of different parts of the mind system the unifying the mind around intentions is what gives us the power to change ourselves and to to change the world that we perceive that we live in and in fact to produce changes in that world outside of our own mind as well so i hope that's helpful but it's one of one of those questions that you know it's we we talk in in tmi about recognizing that you're not doing this but it's all through intention you form and hold intentions and intentions lead to action and intentions and actions repeated long enough uh, become become habits they become automatic you know so we speak of this as though you know it's uh, it's just a a, a means a, a device a part of the meditation process a way to to make your meditation work better and to give you a more uh, a healthy relationship to the meditation process rather than striving and selfing and I've got to do this and things like that we present it that way but at its heart it is the deepest part of the Dharma through developing the mindfulness to recognize and to direct uh, the intentions the mind system liberates itself Harry uh, Hamas or, or Hames, I, I'm not sure. Uh, you have mentioned that there are different ways that stream entry might occur. For example, through the progress of insight stages, through a PCE, or through a gradual series of lesser awakenings. I could probably restate that. Uh, the progress of insight stages is uh, a it's it's a description first of all of the way insight develops uh, but it has been presented to us first by buddha gosa but most especially by ledi sayada and mahasi sayada and their successors uh, and and you know the all of the people that uh, do this practice now um, it it is presented as a particular path and it is a particular path that is designed to bring you to insight specifically to into impermanence and uh, because of the nature of the practice it produces a cessation experience a gap or, or i should say a cessation experience that takes the form of a gap which may be recognized or not other practices produce uh, a uh, 
PCE, uh, pure consciousness experience or consciousness without an object. Um, these are also cessation experiences. Exactly what happens if with a gradual series of lesser awakenings, um, I don't really know. Uh, I haven't experienced that myself. I've, I've met uh, quite a few people who have, um, but um, it, 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 seems, it, it seems as though that um, the way I would interpret this is that cessation experiences, which correspond to uh, cessation of uh, all mental formations, and it constitutes uh, a kind of nirvana that um, that the cessation experience, while it's a profound experience that can be induced in meditation and often occurs uh, in meditation and during retreats, it is not in and of itself the only way that a person can awaken. Uh, it's just, I would actually put it in the category of um, a very powerful kind of experience that can lead to that final breakthrough uh, of stream entry. And by replicating it, uh, it can conduce to a certain degree to a similar transition to higher paths. Um, So awakening does not have to happen via a cessation experience, whether, it's, whether that cessation experience is described as a gap or a pure consciousness or experience, or, uh, uh, which is really another name for consciousness without an object. Uh, they're really both the same thing. It doesn't really matter. Uh, it doesn't have to happen through this. The, the, this is one of the ways that it can happen, but what seems apparent to me uh, is that uh, there's enough people who uh, cannot point to an experience like that and where they can't even point to a particular discrete period of time when uh, the transition was sufficiently uh, sudden and distinct, uh, you know, that, that it, it made a strong imprint in their mind and they can say, well, this happened at such and such a time. They just, uh, some of them just uh, gradually come to realize that it has happened and that they've been seeing things in a completely different way than, than they did before and than uh, other people do. Uh, and it's just sort of a, oh, wow, what's been going on here? What happened? So. You, uh, your question, you go on to ask, you've also mentioned the value of repeating fruitions. And your question is, for a person who has entered the stream gradually or through a PCE, what approaches, activities, etc., would make further fruitions more likely? Well, uh, for somebody who has uh, entered the stream through any form of cessation, it's by reproducing the causes and conditions that led to that cessation that, uh, that you can go about repeating the fruition. Uh, repetition of the fruition is valuable because it, as I say, what, 
I look at it as a powerful experience that leads to a breakthrough. So you repeat that powerful experience and uh, it tends to, to uh, deepen and make more extensive within the mind system as a whole that particular breakthrough in understanding. So there's tremendous value in repeating fruitions if you're capable of. Many people are not, and it, it, uh, it's, not, it's not essential. The repetition of fruitions is not essential for achieving second path uh, or uh, well, when you get into second, third, fourth path uh, territory and there's, there's some movement back and forth, then there, uh, e even if you didn't learn on first path how to repeat fruitions, you, you have repeated spontaneous fruition experiences, um, or, at least, um, or at least it seems that most people do. For somebody for whom it's happened gradually, uh, they can do much the same thing. What, what you're doing is becoming fully conscious of the uh, difference, the distinction between the way you perceived yourself uh, and the world and your relationship to it, the difference between that. Because all of these insights mature and deepen throughout the four paths that were described and by the Buddha. And uh, the fourth path is a path, and, and it continues throughout this process. Uh, the, your initial understanding of these insights continues to deepen. It continues to mature. It continues to open up new dimensions. And there is a process of, of bringing more and more of your mind system at every level into, first of all, a state of perceiving things through insight rather than through our con uh, consensual uh, reality, shared reality that we have. Um, and then, as that spreads, then the deepening, uh, the maturing, uh, the multidimensional aspect of those very same insights, that also starts in certain parts of the mind system and needs to spread to others. And so having, having holding in consciousness, remember consciousness is how all these different parts of the mind system are ultimately communicating with each other. So holding clearly in, uh, in your mind, the understanding that is the gift of insight and its distinction from and its differences from the delusion that you lived in before is will serve the same purpose as the fruition experience. As a matter of fact, I would put more weight on this practice of uh, intentionally and consciously 
holding the state of uh, uh, insight in the very powerful form as being the most important thing to do. When you have insight experiences uh, or states of insight that last a particular period of time and then pass away, one of the best things that you can do is try to put yourself back into that state. Try to remember why it was and how it was that you saw things so differently and, and, and try to relive that experience. And that's essentially uh, what somebody who is still a worldling who's beginning to develop insight, what I would recommend for them to do. When somebody comes to me and said, you know, uh, this happened to me, I was in the state, you know, that's, this is the advice I would give them there. So for somebody who has entered the stream gradually, the same thing would apply. And I would say that repetition of fruitions is a way of doing that. And that what's, what's, really, what's really most important, whatever way you do it, is that you bring into consciousness as fully as possible the mode of perception corresponding to insight and to awakening and, and recognize its difference from the delusions that some parts of your mind system still hold on to. So probably not the answer you were expecting, Carrie, but... Um, <laughs> um, Okay, John Monroe, uh, could you please say a little more about gross distractions uh, in stage four as opposed to stage two and telling the difference? Um, let's see, are, are you here, John? Yes. Good, okay. Um, just off the top of my head, my first response would be uh, in stage two, you tend not to be, you, you haven't developed enough introspective awareness to really be aware of most gross distractions. So you're sitting there focusing on the meditation object. The gross distraction arises without you realizing it. It leads to forgetting without you realizing it. And then there's a spontaneous um, reawakening to the fact that you're intended to be meditating on, on the sensations of the breath. So by stage four, you have developed uh, introspective awareness and you are now beginning to, uh, well, first of all, you, you're, you're learning to make that introspective awareness continuous. Uh, and so you, you're seeing the process by which subtle distractions become gross distractions. Okay, so you, uh, in stage three, you saw how gross distractions led to forgetting, but you often, but you had to work towards seeing how uh, subtle distractions be became gross distractions, and you weren't really very good at this, but you got really good at recognizing gross distractions. So that was a difference between stage two. When you get to stage four, you get, you're now working in the realm of being able to see the subtle distractions 
that are becoming gross distractions and you can make a correction for them before that. So off the top of my head, the simple answer is in, in stage two, you're, you're not aware of gross distractions arising that often. Uh, in stage four, you're quite aware and you're training yourself to become much more aware, both, both continuously aware and beginning to develop a bit of that metacognitive perspective where you're kind of looking at the mind uh, through introspective awareness while attention is focused on the meditation object. And that's what allows you to see the multitude of subtle distractions and how they become gross. But is that what you were asking? Uh, yeah, that kind of covers it. I guess uh, it's um, it's uh, when it seems like the better the the, the uh, more focused the mind becomes, it's this sort of uh, kind of onslaught of material uh, that comes up. Uh, it's kind of hard to you know the mind sort of feels like it should be getting more uh uh you know what's the word calm and and, and there should be less stuff happening but there's more stuff happening and so uh it's sometimes it's hard to uh feel that yeah. when it's progressing i guess yes well it's uh, it's uh if yes it definitely feels like more stuff is happening but actually uh it was always happening it just wasn't it just wasn't reg registering. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Okay, so the next question here is uh, Tom Jensen. Uh, if it is possible, I would like this. Oh, that, all right, that was preamble here. Um, I would like to ask about using an electronic reminder for a brief time in conjunction with intention in stage three as a reminder to check in every five or six breaths. Uh, the question may evolve a bit. Uh, I don't know, has it evolved? Um, my answer to the question as it stands is uh, uh, that's a very valuable thing. Uh, as a matter of fact, the ideal electronic device uh, would make a little sound uh, not always at the same interval, but the, uh, you know, there'd be a variation in intervals because your mind very quickly adapts to something that happens consistently. Uh, uh, so it, it, it's not going to be quite as powerful and effective as something that, that your mind can't learn to predict. But uh, e even something that was a reminder at regular intervals would, would still serve the purpose and uh, it's only temporary. You don't need it very long before you get to the, you get to the place where you start to have more real introspective awareness and you don't require that introspective attention to give you the feedback you need in stage three. The simple answer, yep, use it, go for it. Thank you. Uh, question from Kevin Hing. Please discuss, clarify, expand on your recent comments regarding your view of the distinctions between naturalist, pragmatic, and secular Dharma Buddhism. Uh, I'd like to have a clearer understanding of what it means to be a naturalist. 
and a clearer view of where the naturalist path diverges from that of a secularist and a, pragmat a pragmatist. Um, and yes, that was the question that uh, I was uh, thinking of when I started talking about this earlier. So I've already said quite a bit about this, but uh, yeah, I'd like to, I, I could add a little more to this in, in a specific way uh, regarding the naturalization of the Dharma. Now, if you were to take a presentation of the Dharma, and this could be, this could be a book that you read, could be something you read on the internet, it could be commentaries on the suttas, or it could be the suttas themselves. In order to naturalize the Dharma, what you do is you look at those things which are, well, first of all, let me back up a step. You, you want to take as your intention and your purpose the uh, view that you are going to try to understand what the Buddha himself was saying and distinguish it from those things that have been added that have come from other religious traditions that either preceded the Buddha uh, or, or came afterwards and got incorporated into it. And most of these assume things that are essentially what would we call supernatural or else they are completely outside the realm of what we could validate through experience. So in order to <clears throat> try to see this through the lens of, of the Buddha himself, what do we know about the Buddha? We know that, first of all, he was what uh, might be called in modern philosophical parlance, very much a phenomenologist. And so what that means is that uh, he examined what arose, the kinds of perceptions and experiences that arose in the mind, and tried to extrapolate from themselves, from them, the nature of the uh, part of or aspect of reality that was being presented in consciousness. So that, in in terms of phenomenology, would be described as trying to understand the thing in itself. And the term phenomenon refers to that which arises in consciousness. And in uh, the Dharma, that means the dhammas. The, the contents of consciousness are dhammas. And uh, in, in the Abhidhamma, these, are broken, these dhammas are broken down into discrete moments of consciousness, which have certain attributes or chitasikas. So the Buddha also repeatedly said that he did not intend to teach metaphysics uh, or a religion. 
Now, of course, a lot of what he taught has metaphysical implications. And so uh, it was really impossible for him to teach without there being uh, those metaphysical implications being present, people asking questions about them, them being topics of discussion, and therefore appearing not only in the suttas, but also in modern writing. So we have to recommend that. But go to these sources. <clears throat> and the Buddha was brilliant. He would not have given teachings that contained contradictions. And as a phenomenologist, he would not have incorporated into his teachings things that could not be experientially verified. Um, he, he was also very much a pragmatist. You know, uh, if, if, if this isn't something that is subject to uh, direct knowledge and experience, then uh, it, it belongs in a different place. And that's how you, that's how you naturalize Buddhist Dharma. Now, there's some things that <clears throat> what you're basically doing is you're taking these things and you're setting them aside. You're not throwing them away. Uh, although you may, never, you may never take them out of the box that you put in, put them in again, ever again. But the reason you're not throwing them away and rather you're setting them aside is that as your understanding deepens, you might, you might actually realize the truth of some of these things experientially. And so, uh, uh, and, and when that time comes, of course, then you'll take them back out of the box. But in the meantime, you look for what is a uh, completely coherent uh, and uh, interrelated and highly consistent teaching. And whatever you find that uh, appears to be inconsistent with the most core aspects of the teaching, uh, you set them aside. All the things that you come across that you know were an established part of uh, uh, religious and philosophical systems prior to or during the lifetime of the Buddha by uh, other wandering teachers by himself, uh, you set those things aside. Those things that you know uh, are a part of the uh, other religious systems that developed in India and to some degree elsewhere, um, you, you provisionally set those aside too. I say provisionally because sometimes, whereas things from the past have gotten, uh, pre-Buddhist things have gotten included into the Dharma, sometimes when you find something that is held in another tradition, like Advaita Vedanta or something like that, um, it actually originally came from the Buddhist Dharma. <laughs> so, so that's why you have to take a little bit of a different attitude and be a little more provisional in what you set aside uh, things that belong to subsequent traditions. That as you do this, you should find, uh, you should find a Dharma that becomes more and more clear and consistent. And... Uh, uh, the things that don't fit start to stand out. Now, if you were if you were a scholar uh, of these languages and uh, uh, quite knowledgeable and, and uh, 
uh, fluent in your ability to compare Chinese agamas to Sanskrit, uh, the remnants of Sanskrit uh, 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 suttas and the Pali Canon, then you would also see things where there's a very obvious change in voice or attitude and you can tell that something's been added. Other times it's just a single word that has been changed, but it completely shifts the meaning of a whole message that's being conveyed. But to naturalize the Dharma, most basically is to uh, remove, in the sense of setting aside, anything that seems to be supernatural and seems to be uh, um, beyond the realm of uh, experiential verification. So one of the, just an example, one of the biggest conflicts is the idea of anatta and reincarnation. And you will see how different people in different schools of Buddhism have gone to such convoluted and weird efforts to try to reconcile these two. These two are not reconcilable as such. Now, on the other hand, we can take something like the experience that people have referred to as knowledge of past lives. And that might, that usually is taken as proof of reincarnation. And when you take it as proof of reincarnation, then you are seeing it as something that really makes anatta, uh, really makes interconnectedness, uh, really makes uh, impermanence as process. Uh, it, 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 it either contradicts them or at least makes the foundations really super shaky. Uh, you, can go to, you can go to some great lengths to try to resolve them and, and uh, you know, the Buddha made it really clear that uh, uh, consciousness is not what was being, uh, 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 was not what re reincarnation referred to. So uh, in the Mahayana tradition, the Tibetan tradition, they have said, okay, it's not consciousness, it's mind. There's the mind stream. There's this mind stream that maintains its coherence um, through the dissolution of the body. But, um, what this is, what all this is doing is we have a genuine experience. If you do these practices, you will have uh, a, a profound experience of what it was like to be someone else uh, at another time. There is no, nothing in that experience that points to you having been that person. Reincarnation introduces something that is not a part of the experience. So to explain the experience, we keep an open mind. We discard that which cannot be uh, uh, validated experientially. And we continue on and we accept, okay, there's this phenomenon that occurs. And perhaps as uh, our development of understanding uh, uh, improves, uh, uh, that 
uh, we'll discover what it is, but we don't make any assumptions, and it's particularly we don't make an assumption that this is proof of something that is, uh, first of all, non-demonstrable, and other, and uh, furthermore, was a, a fairly common view held at the time of the Buddha, and one that rather than him arguing against, he actually made use of. He didn't refer to reincarnation, but he referred frequently to rebirth. What did he refer to as the rebirth of? He referred to the rebirth of the self. He said the self was a, a, a mental formation. It's a rebirth of a mental formation. The Buddha did this with many different things. He did this with karma. Now, karma, the idea that your actions produce consequences, experiences that you have in the future, uh, as particularly in future lifetimes and things like this. Now, this is something that falls in the category of, of non-validatable, non uh, but also there's no way that you can make sense of it. So it was your karma to die in a plane crash. How in the world did things get manipulated so that the other 180 people on that aircraft also had exactly the same karma that came to fruition at, at, at the same time? That's just a simple example. The Buddha said, the Buddha said, this is a powerful idea. It's just being misapplied. Karma is intention. And the fruits of that are not what happens to you, but who it happens to. If through your intentions you can become awakened, then the experience you have of whatever happens to you is completely altered. It also, his teachings also recognize the causality of everything. And so let's say that through your intentions, you become a kind, generous, honest, trustworthy, uh, caring person. Uh, that is going to have manifestations that come back to you from the world. It doesn't mean that you won't be, uh, that you won't be mugged and robbed. It doesn't mean that uh, you won't develop a, a terminal disease. It doesn't mean anything like that. But there will be, the, everything is causally interconnected. So if you practice the Dharma in your life, if you live the Dharma, you're going to have a lot of really good things happen to you. But the fruit of your practice of the Dharma isn't that. Those are the causal consequences of that in your lifetime. And we can see that experientially we have no business talking about future lifetimes. But you can see that it has consequences in this lifetime. But the biggest consequences that it has is that you are constantly denying the tendency to act out of craving. So you are freeing yourself from the enslavement by craving. You are constantly denying the attachment to self. So you are, through living this way and behaving this way, according to the second, third, fourth, and fifth of the Eightfold Path, what you are doing is you are constantly moving yourself in the direction of awakening. And with that wisdom, 
becomes a freedom from the suffering that would otherwise be experienced as a result of the things that happen to you. So do you see how he took a rather primitive and simplistic idea that was quite predominant, was very popular uh, amongst people because, let's face it, most people are rather simplistic. And so a simplistic explanation uh, like, like karma and rebirth and free of fruits of karma um, is not only very attractive, uh, it, it, helps, it helps them feel better about things. It motivates them to behave in better ways. It's a powerful uh, tool. Uh, it's a powerful religious teaching. But is it truth? And what we're after with the Buddha Dharma is seeing things as they really are. If you see things as they really are and you understand karma and its fruits from the perspective the Buddha taught, it's, it's like a scientific theory that it, it's, it's like uh, relativity physics. It completely incorporates Newtonian physics. The Buddha's understanding and his teaching of karma as intention and the fruits of karma as personal transformation, you can make yourself a better person or a worse person through your, through your intentions, your karma. You can suffer more or you can suffer less. You can see it has that same kind of relationship. It's taking an idea and it's raising it to a much higher level that actually includes what, the, what, was, what was of value in this simpler idea as a religious teaching. So this, was, this is a really good example of naturalizing the Dharma and doing it on the basis of what the Buddha actually said and what he actually taught. And in the process of doing that, it removes all kinds of confusing things, all kinds of contradictions. So that's what I mean by naturalization. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate that. Just one other side question to make sure I understand the distinction, because to me, I previously had thought your... your um, explanation of experiencing the past lives of others, I sort of instinctively view that to be, in its own way, a supernatural related event. So am I correct in understanding that for you, the distinction of something supernatural, that's not naturalistic, is that you're able to experience it. It's the experiential <clears throat> rather than, for example, the distinction between your ability to experience others' past lives and the fact that we can't verify reincarnation, for example. Am I correct in understanding that distinction? <clears throat> yes, right. But it's not, if, if it were something that only I experience, you know, uh, that would be different. But it's something that quite a few people have experienced. Um, not only that, it has certain qualities to it that set it apart from other experiences. So uh, I don't even rule out the possibility that it's completely an imaginative projection of, of the mind. I don't rule that out, but in other things that I haven't spoken of here and uh, that I usually only speak of to select audiences, experiences that I've had that point very strongly 
collectively, different kinds of experiences, to the fact that that um, mind, that our individual minds are not really separate, and that the past is not something that is gone. The past is something that is always there. And that our minds can enter into a state of residence, resonance with the minds of those that have gone before. And, you know, it's as though that information at a certain level uh, is somehow stored. It's permanently there. Now that, uh, another criteria that I use, and this really is, you know, we're, we're getting out there a little bit. I'm very much a non-dualist. There is no distinction. There is no such thing as materiality, and there is no such thing as mentality. There's something else. Let's call it suchness. But when you experience that suchness from inside, it, you experience it as mine. When you experience it from the outside, it comes across as matter and energy, as physicality. Now, we know that the entire history of the universe is contained within the universe in this very moment. That had you sufficient knowledge, uh, you could retrace the history of the universe right back to the Big Bang. And to a certain degree, this is, this is uh, the goal of cosmologists. At one point, I wanted to become a cosmologist, but it didn't happen. So. <laughs> uh, I let Stephen Hawking do it for me. So, but um, if in the material world, the entire history of the past is inherently, implicitly in present, present uh, in the present, then, and things are not dual, then what we see as an aspect of materiality must also be true of what we experience as mentality, since it's really the same stuff. So the life you live, it has a beginning and it has an end. But once you have created that life, and that life is your one great creation, it's there forever, and it's potentially accessible to others. So now that's a way of explaining how we can experience past lives. And it also is a way of explaining why some of us have dreams of other lives that are so vivid that when and so vivid and complete that when we wake up, we're not really sure what, what you know. Uh, am I a monk dreaming I'm a butterfly, or am I a butterfly who dreamed he was a monk? You know. Um, but I also hold out the possibility that these are mere, utterly fantastic confabulations of the mind. But there is a body of experience, of shared experience of other people, which suggests the other interpretation. And that is consistent with a lot of experience that I have in different ways. So, yeah. So I look at that, and what basically what it boils down to is I'm saying, uh, let's not put this in the box of the supernatural. There might be a completely natural explanation for it, 
It's just that we're no better at explaining that than uh, somebody would be of explaining certain physical phenomena 100 years ago or 200 years ago. We just don't have the knowledge yet to, to understand exactly how that uh, completely fits into the schema of the natural, the completely natural. Does that help to clarify? Yes, wonderful. Thank you very much. Those kinds of distinctions are, are important because if you take a simplistic approach, you might throw the, those out uh, entirely, which when you have other experiences, you'd have to go and retrieve, you know, they wouldn't be available for you to retrieve because I'm already reminded that already said, ah, it's nonsense. So that's why I say you set them aside so that you can retrieve them and say, wow, what I've just experienced now is quite different, but now it kind of makes sense with, in conjunction with this other experience that I had previously. So, so in your process of naturalization, yeah, got to keep those things in mind. Okay, well, we're, we're both close to the end of the questions and, uh, and uh, getting quite on in time. We've almost hit an hour and a half here. Um, I mentioned on a podcast that I was doing research into fire casino to see if it had any potential to help developing meditators. Um, do you feel like it may be useful for advancing one's practice as an object of attention? in place of the breath for people who are more visually oriented? Or are you finding that is more of a toy to play with uh, once one already has developed concentration? Um, if it can be a useful tool, at what TMI stage do you see it fitting in? That's what I'm, these are, these are all the things that I'm trying to figure out. It, I, I actually, now I do see it could have some value very early on in uh, helping people develop concentration. But that's very limited and that's very early on because um, the fire casino is something that is super easy to focus your attention on. Who do you know of that hasn't ever sat in lost and focused concentration on uh, anything from a candle flame to, to, to a bonfire or a campfire or a fire in your fireplace. The mind is drawn to fire and it's easy to focus it on. It's interesting. You close your eyes and there's this after image and this after image changes color and it, it forms multiple parts. So it can be a device for helping somebody develop concentration. But that part of the practice I see so far as being fairly limited in, in how it could be helpful. I'm much more interested in uh, what's uh, referred to as the Merck. It's where your eyes are closed and uh, uh, the after image has disappeared. And now essentially it's your visual cortex. Anything that you perceive is going to be arising predominantly from your visual cortex. Now this was, the fire casino was originally proposed as an object for entering jhana. And uh, uh, it is conducive, it is quite conducive uh, in that Merck phase to uh, entering into jhanic states. Um, the 
uh, in the after image phase, uh, it, can, it can help bring a person to uh, access concentration. Uh, access concentration is essentially where the five hindrances are, are absent because, and the five hindrances are the sources of distraction. So it means you're focusing on something without distraction. So uh, it, the, that can bring you to a place of, of, uh, of access. Now, what I've yet to explore thoroughly is what the potential value is of the further stages of the fire casino. And uh, in, in a sense, I'm kind of working together with a variety of people, in, including uh, uh, Daniel Ingram. And we're, those of us who are interested in this uh, have, uh, are, are going to be attending a retreat uh, in October, uh, November. And so I think not only myself, but a whole lot of other uh, uh, teachers and advanced practitioners are going to come out of that retreat with some new ideas about how this can be used. Um, there's some interesting things of all the casino practices that are mentioned in the Vasudhi Maga. It is the last one. It is also uh, one of the ones with the least amount of descriptive information. It kind of refers you, keeps referring you back to the first casino to understand it. So it, uh, um, I've wondered about the significance of that. Why is it listed last? And, and why is there so little detailed description of it compared to uh, other casino practices? But yeah, I'm interested in anything that points to the possibility of advancing one's practice more rapidly. And I'm also interested in um, being able to make it clear to other people how um, you may be able to achieve certain things like access concentration uh, with something like a fire casino, but that the access concentration that you experience is dependent on a crutch. You have not developed the, the mental faculties and skills and abilities necessary to generate access concentration. Now, whether or not somebody doing that for years using a fire casino would end up having, uh, having developed those abilities, I don't know. But one of the things, in addition to looking for what its advantages are, I want to identify what are the applications of it that would actually be, uh, could be misinterpreted and misused in a way that would slow down one's progress. That's the last thing I'd like to see happen. So uh, I'm interested in all kinds of other things along those lines too, including uh, various kinds of brain stimulation, neurofeedback, especially deep brain stimulation using ultrasound that shows a lot of potential for the future. Um, the introduction of positive psychology into meditation practice. Uh, I think uh, Jeffrey Martin has demonstrated very clearly what an important contribution uh, positive psychology can be to the advancement of one's, one's practice. And uh, uh, what's, uh, what's another reason? Oh, yes. Um, the development of a physical component. Um, the uh, a very high level the meditation techniques 
usually are limited to uh, dealing with, with the experience of pain in sitting uh, and uh, the phenomena that arise with uh, energy currents and involuntary movements. Um, uh, and of course, uh, learning to use attention and awareness while doing walking meditation. But in terms of bringing about a much greater purification of the mind, the, what I've discovered and realized is that the body itself and a very high level of body awareness is a tremendous window into more deeply buried aspects of our psyche that need to be worked with. Worked with. Um, we all have trained ourselves to keep certain things at the emotional level from rising into consciousness. They still affect our behavior and they may even be visible to somebody else through our uh, body language. Not necessarily, but sometimes. But the thing is that your emotional brain not only sends signals up to the parts of your brain that generate conscious awareness and, and uh, allow for examination by attention, but they also have a downward flow and manifest in your body. So that when they become invisible to consciousness, you can rediscover those emotions and you can work with those emotions and you can work with your own psyche at that deep level through a high level of body awareness. So that's an aspect of the Dharma that I'm really interested. Uh, that's a, an aspect of other kinds of work that people are doing that I feel could be incorporated into practice to advance people's practice. And there's a number of other things like that. I'm basically interested in anything that shows the possibility of, of, uh, of people achieving insight and becoming awakened more quickly. And I'm going to go ahead and deal with this last question here. Um, Jean-Michel Moreau, can you talk a bit in detail about intention and holding intentions? How does one develop a sensitivity and ability to be mindful of intentions and to evoke them like we do with loving kindness and metta? I have an example of what works and doesn't work, but I don't know how to generalize it. What works during breath meditation, I mentally say vividness as my mindfulness of, a, of vividness of the breath, as I'm mindful of the vividness of the breath waning. What doesn't work in walking meditation, I've heard the instruction to notice the intention to move before you move. Yes, well, as I said before, and, and Intention is really what the mind does. And uh, those intentions become manifest both in, within the mind and uh, when it's appropriate uh, or when it has an emotional com component, they become manifest in the body and through actions and through speech and things like that. But even focusing attention on the meditation object isn't something that there's anybody in there doing. It's the result of enough of the mind holding the intention to do that, that it actually happens, and that you recognize when it's not happening. 
intention, everything we do is really just intention. When I raise my arm, I'm not raised. There's no I that's raising my arm. What's happening is my mind has formed the intention to raise my arm. Um, some various networks that, uh, in, in the mind that generate that intention. The result of that intention is that it may appear in consciousness, but it also goes to my motor cortex, and from my motor cortex it flows down um, uh, into my body. In the case of holding the intention to um, keep your attention on the breath, it's going to the parts of your mind that determine where attention is focused, and it is sustaining your attention on the breath. But everything we do, like raising my arm, this, you know, the intention formed, and then it went to my motor cortex, and everything else had nothing to do with the part of my mind that generated the intention. Can you see that? If I do, if something, if somebody puts an electrode in, in, in or uses a chemical substance, or if there's damage to my motor cortex, or if there's damage to any part of the pathway, or even if somebody start, tries, ties my arm down with a strap, I won't be able to lift my arm. But the only thing that the mind has done when I lift my arm is to create an intention. Everything we do is intention. Uh, the thought arises in your mind that, oh, I'd like to have a cup of tea. Well, that intention is a result probably of subtle segment, signals from uh, your, your uh, body that uh, um, it's appropriate to take in some fluid to keep yourself hydrated so that you don't become thirsty. Anyway, the intent, the idea arises and with it arises the intention and so you get up and you do that. What you're doing in med meditation is learning to use intention. And so that's why I'm encouraging people to focus more on holding and sustaining an intention, recognizing with your awareness when the intention is waning. And as, uh, as Jean-Michel says, uh, he can use the, the cue vividness when, he recognize, when his awareness tells him that uh, the, the vividness of the breath is waning. So that's an expression of the intention that's held to uh, uh, hold the attention on the breath. As you progress to a high state of metacognitive introspective awareness, you can become aware of intentions as they arise. You can become aware of it in situations like when you're having a conversation with somebody and the intention arises to say something and you can recognize that it's inappropriate and refrain from saying it. Now that requires a high degree of mental development to be able to see those intentions. Now when you're doing walking meditation um, and you're encouraged to notice the intention to move before you move, uh, yes, you're not going to be able to recognize that intention arising in consciousness uh, until you've developed a very high, de high level of introspective awareness. You have to have very powerful introspective awareness to notice that, that intention. And um, it's worth, it's worth uh, working on. But the thing is that if you go through the 10 stages, by the time you get 
to the later stages of skill development, you're going to find that happening more and more spontaneously. And neurologically, there's an interesting thing about this. An intention is formed. Then the intention arises in consciousness about a quarter to half of uh, a second later. It's really amazing that you actually often don't become aware of the intention until after the action has already been initiated, initiated or depending on the action, may, it, it, it may even, if it's, if it's a rapid enough action, it may even have been completed before you become consciously aware of it. But what your mind does is post-date the intention so it precedes the consciousness of the action. <laughs> and this is something that's been demonstrated uh, in, the, in laboratory experiments quite a long time ago. It's an interesting, the consciousness of intention follows and lags behind the conscious development of the intention. And the action can actually follow more rapidly than the consciousness of the intention. But what I would like people to do is first get clear that intention isn't some novel thing or some capacity we have that uh, is undeveloped. It's really fundamentally the main thing that we're doing anyway. And to understand that helps to eliminate all of the selfing associated with meditation practice. The more that you recognize, I mean, as so long as you still feel like you're a separate self that's doing something, that you are an agent of your meditation, what I'm saying to you through the way I've written this book is, fine, I know that you're going to feel like you're exerting agency, at least for quite a while in this. But let's associate that agency with nothing but the arising of intention. Let's not associate it with whether or not your attention remains on the breath and how long it remains on the breath. Let's not associate it with whether or not you become aware of uh, a gross distraction arising or when the gross distraction arises. Let's just, let's associate the sense of agency with forming and holding an intention and realizing that that's exactly what we do all the time. When we, when we want a cup of tea, we have the intention. We get up and the intention causes us to, to walk into the kitchen and put on the water and choose the tea we want and so on and so forth. That, um, that unconscious processes and the processes of the body um, are responsible for the results of our intentions. So the most important thing, I, the message that I really want to get across right now is that everything we do, even carrying through our thought processes, is it begins with intention and it begins with intention shared by enough subminds to manifest as some sort of action, either internally or externally. And the purpose of encouraging you to be aware of that is then you can go to the instructions in TMI and you can realize that, yeah, I don't have to 
I don't have to judge myself or my meditation by what happens. All I have to do is to know what the practice consists of for the way my mind is behaving right now and just hold the intentions to do that. In stage two, I awaken from mind wandering. My intention is not to get not to react negatively, react positively, to recognize that this is a good thing, and hold the intention to stay in this wide, wide awake, fully present state for as long as I can after I return to the breath. See, it makes it much simpler that way, and it removes all of the judgment and, and disappointment and impatience and everything else that acts as obstacles to meditation. Best thing of all, though, is you start to get to a point around stage seven when you start to experience effortlessness. And um, we can uh, interpret this as uh, automaticity and not carry it to the next step in our understanding of it. But a lot of people carry it to the next step. And that next step is, well, it really is true. There is no sense, uh, there is no me that's in here making this thing happen. It's happening by itself. And that becomes more clear in the practices that characterize stages eight and nine. Um, so what I'm subtly doing in this way, um, in terms of planting the seed at the end of the uh, overview chapter where we discuss intentions and that all of the stages of meditation can be understood in terms of uh, holding, uh, forming and holding intentions. I'm planting that seed that will ultimately, when you come, come to the stage of insight, where the only thing that is going to bring you back to a state of uh, uh, joy and comfort is, is anatta, is the acceptance that there is no self. You're going to be ready. There's not, it's, it's not going to be a tra traumatic transition. It's going to be a little bit scary, like jumping out of an airplane, you know, uh, you, with, a, with a parachute. <laughs> it, might be scary, it, it might be scary, but it's not traumatic because you've already let, let go of a lot of your attachment to the idea of an agent that's doing things. And of course, if you've been practicing mindful review, and if you've been practicing the second through fifth parts of the Eightfold Path, you've been, you've been working on the same thing all along, too. So it makes the transition through the Dukanyanas uh, the way that they're described in the Vasudhimaga rather than the way they've been described by everybody since. You see, Buddha Gosa, Gosa doesn't say that um, you experience fear. He says it's you recognize that to cling to things would be as fearful as, and then he gives some examples of some very unpleasant things. So the Dukanyanas are understood differently from the perspective of somebody who has achieved so much detachment from uh, the, the belief in their agency, and that there's somebody in here watching all of this happen. So intention is the first seed in that process that I plant. But it's also, in terms of karma, 
in terms of how everything really happens. It's, um, gee, you know, what can I say? <laughs> uh, it, it is so very, very important. So thank you for your question, Jean-Michel. And uh, uh, when you, uh, when during breath meditation, you become aware of the breath, uh, of the vividness of the breath waning, that's a result of an intention. And when you say to yourself, vividness, that is the result of an intention. The, the day will come when you find that uh, you can actually, if you choose to, become aware of those intentions uh, as they arise. Uh, they don't, um, they're subtle, but, but yeah, you'll be able to do walking meditation and recognize the intention to lift your foot before you lift your foot, to move it forward before you move it forward, to lower it before you lower it. So, and so that is the end of the questions and we've gone almost two hours. I hope uh, those of you who stuck it out got some value out of the answers to these questions. Um, I enjoyed the opportunity to, uh, to have this talk with you. Uh, so, and I do want to thank you deeply, very, very deeply for supporting Dharma Treasure through your Patreon contributions. Uh, it means so much to us and uh, um, we're, we're able to do things as a result that might never be done. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. And um, thank you for, uh, Thank you for sharing this time with me and, and giving me the opportunity to talk to you. Until next time.